Okay, we're back and uh, talking about the assurance of salvation. And as we begin this morning, we are going to looking at God's preservation uh, after we looked at regeneration from last week. Let me pray for us as we begin and ask the Lord's blessing on our time this morning. Our Father, we come before you and we do praise you for the great things that you have done in our lives and calling us to Christ and regenerating us and giving us faith and causing us to believe and giving us a heart to profess our faith in Christ for your glory and for our good, for the forgiveness of our sins and the hope of eternal life. It is a hope that is sure and true with great expectation and great confidence. We will live out this life knowing that we will ultimately be in your presence when we leave this earth. We thank you for the assurance you give us, and we pray for those who don't have that assurance, either because of unbelief or because not having understood your truth, that you would help them to have that assurance today, as you have given many of us here today. Thank you for what you have done, and the peace you give us that passes all comprehension. In Christ's name we pray, amen. We are studying the assurance of salvation, and we said it is a doctrine, just the teachings about what the Bible says, not just a, a doctrinal statement, but it's the doctrine of assurance of salvation. And last week, we talked about what assurance is and by definition. It is the divinely given confidence of the believer that he or she is truly saved. The divinely given confidence of a believer that he or she is truly saved, and my Simple definition, knowing you have faith in Jesus Christ and will go to heaven. It's that simple. And you can know that, and God wants us to know that. And we looked at several passages last week about that. I mean, the Bible teaches us that we can have assurance of our salvation through an intellectual understanding and an experiential knowledge of the doctrines of regeneration and preservation and perseverance. And as we said last time, different theologians will use different words, different terms. Some focus on the preservation, some focus on the perseverance. If you're of the Calvinist world, the tulip P is or perseverance of the saints. They will persevere to the end in the sovereignty of God and his salvation. And so we'll look a little bit about that today, some of the different uh, views on that. But we can understand those things. And intellectual understanding in that we can read what God has said and believe what that says is true. And experientially, because when we are born again, God changes us and we know it and we feel it and we see the changes in our lives. And so it's both things that are there. Some people just have an intellectual understanding of certain things about salvation, but truly have never been born again. Have never experienced that saving faith that God gives us to believe in Christ. They may have said a prayer about Jesus or something like that at one point in their life, but have never come to love the Lord and love his word and, and grow and change in those ways. And so therefore don't have assurance of their salvation, even though they wrote their name in the front of their Bible and were told to go back and never question their salvation. Look at that. But sometimes that's the only thing they ever open in their Bible is that front flap. Rather than going to maybe the back of the Bible where it says, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Or do you not recognize these things that Christ is in you? 
And so we're to be careful about that. I don't want to give anybody any false assurance of salvation, but I also don't want to have anyone doubt unintentionally. I want you to have the assurance that God has given us. And again, I can't give you assurance, and I don't believe any other human being can. Only God can through his word and through his spirit. And so we want to understand what God has said about the assurance of salvation, specifically and understanding regeneration, preservation, and then the perseverance of the saints. And last time, we look, well, here's our outline. We're going to be looking at regeneration and the gift of faith, which was last time. He caused us to be born again. And then preservation today, promised to the regenerate. We are protected by the power of God. Then perseverance through difficulties and doubts of the regenerate. The tribulation brings about perseverance. And then the last week, we only have four parts here, even though there's five here. Four weeks is what we're going to be doing. The last part we're going to look at is full assurance of the regenerate, so that you may know that you have eternal life, John says. And then the false assurance of the unregenerate, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians. Or do you not recognize this about yourself? We want to make sure that we understand the true and false assurances there. And so last week we looked at regeneration and the gift of faith. What it is, it's the work of the Holy Spirit creating new life in a sinful person by which he repents and comes to believe in Jesus Christ. Why we need it? Because of our condition. We were spiritually dead. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. We were totally unable to come to God. We did not want to come to God. We had total inability, total total depravity. There was nothing good. We didn't seek after God. And we were dead in our sins and destined for God's wrath in hell. And so dead people can't respond to the gospel. And so we needed to be given new spiritual life. We needed to be given the ability to believe. We could have said a prayer about Jesus or whatever, but we had no spiritual life that would cause us to believe in him from our heart. And so how did we receive that? Through the work of the word and the Holy Spirit. It is God, God's will that we be born again, be brought forth by The Word of God. And the Holy Spirit is doing the work of regeneration and renewing, as Titus chapter 3, verse 5 says. And so the Holy Spirit inspired Word and the Gospel is working in our heart, and God is drawing us to His Son, and He gives us new life, and we repent and believe. And so, therefore, we can have faith that our assurance will, an assurance that we will persevere to the end. And therefore, our conclusion was the doctrine of regeneration aids in our assurance of salvation because we can know the spiritual life we have was given to us by God and the faith we have was created in us by God. And so we have this faith because God gave it to us and God created it in us. And therefore, when we struggle and we doubt and we go through difficulties and we're not sure if we're saved or things like that, God draws us back to that faith and we still want to please him and we still want to repent and we still want to live for him and we still want to keep trying. That is the faith that God has given us. And that can't be taken away. And so that helps us to have that assurance of salvation even in the midst of difficult and persevering times. So to, but someone would ask, if God is sovereign in salvation and all those things like that. What about John 1.12? John 1.12 says this. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe in his name. Now, 
We said there's some different views between Calvinists, Arminians, Catholics, different things like that. And here is one of those that we can look at to help us to kind of get some clarification about what we may have been taught in the past compared to what God has said. Arminians believe that you can lose your salvation, right? They believe man and God participate equally in salvation. And so they would say, see, man must believe and receive. And therefore, man may stop believing and reject Jesus. So a believer can lose their salvation. That's what it says, right? Well, what about John 1.13, the next verse? We want to let Scripture interpret Scripture and keep everything in context. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of, flesh, of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We are born again by God. We are given the ability to receive and believe Jesus Christ by God. And so the Calvinist side would be, we don't believe you can lose your salvation. We do embrace the tension of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility in salvation. But we would say, see, you must be born of God in order to believe and receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. And therefore, if you are born again, you cannot lose your salvation because God is the one who gave you the ability to truly receive and believe in Jesus Christ. So if you've been taught those other things, it, it, it's confusing but when we look at the whole of Scripture, we're going to see that God is the one who saves us, and God is the one who gives us faith, and God is the one who preserves us to the end, and that is what He has promised. And you bring all of those things together, and Scripture interprets Scripture, and you see, oh, okay, this makes more sense. This is what it says. Now, John 1, 12 and 13 is pretty obvious and straightforward there. God has said, it's not the will of man. It's not of the blood, not of the flesh, not because of where you were born, not because of those other things. It's because of God who caused you to be born again. So regeneration is new life. And the source of it is God. And because it is the work of God in us, we can have confidence that our faithful, immutable, unchanging God will preserve us to the end. And we're going to look more at the preservation of promised to the regenerate today. Our second part here, the preservation that is promised to the regenerate. The passage that we look at there is 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 5. We are protected by the power of God. And as we read last week, this is a good verse to just come back to often in the midst of trials, in the midst of tribulations, in the midst of doubt, just like these people that Peter was writing to who were scattered, as he says there in verse 1, throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, and those who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ, to be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be the, to the fullest measure be, measure be yours. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 
And so all of these things, you see God working, God sanctifying, God causing us to be born again, God predestining us for salvation, and God is the one who is preserving us in the midst of difficulties, in the midst of trials, for this inheritance that he has already reserved for us in heaven. And he does that by the power of God. We are protected through all of these things for that final destination through the power of God and this faith that he has given us. And that's to assure them and to assure us, the readers, that we can persevere and we will not fail because God is faithful. He goes on there in verse 7, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so we see those things in 1 Peter that God protects us. We are protected by the power of God. Now, when we look at preservation, we want to look at some different definitions. I always like to go back to the English word that we're using that they translated from the Greek. And why are we using that particular word in English, right? And so when we think about preservation, the English dictionary says it's to keep safe from injury, harm, or destruction. Another definition, to keep alive, intact, or free from decay. That kind of transfers over theologically too, doesn't it? We will not decay. Our bodies may go, but we will be, have a new body, a new life, a new eternal life. But to keep us safe from injury, harm, or destruction spiritually, keep us alive, intact, free from decay spiritually. The theological definitions are this of preservation. The teaching that God's saving purpose and limitless power ensure the endurance of the elect to the end. God's saving purpose and limitless power ensure the endurance of the elect to the end, to heaven, to eternal life. Our simple definition, God keeps you from losing your salvation. He will keep you from losing your salvation. God is the one who preserves us. He is preserving us all the way to the end. We persevere. If you misspell it, you're going to get the wrong guy in the wrong spot. Perseverance and preservation. But God is the one who's preserving us, and he is the one who's causing us to persevere. We find God's promise of preservation of the regenerate revealed in three ways. We're going to look at those today. By the power and purposes of God, by the prayers of Jesus, and by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And you see the Godhead at work in the preservation of believers to the end. There are many other things that we can look at, but we're just going to do these three today. And hopefully that will help us to just put those in our heart and know that God is sovereign in preserving us to the end. So the first one there is the power and the purposes of God. We are kept by the very power of the Almighty God Himself. God is omnipotent meaning he is all-powerful. And that is what the scriptures teach us. The power of God to persevere, 1 Peter 1.5, we are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And under the power of God, we see Job 42.2. He says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. 
If it is God's purpose for us to be saved and to endure to the end, that cannot be thwarted. In Jeremiah 32, 27, he says, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? No. Even keeping someone like Fred saved, that's hard, but it's not too difficult. I struggle with the sinful flesh. I struggle in other ways, but God can keep me saved to the end and keep me persevering. There is nothing too difficult for God. You see, in Romans 8, 38, a wonderful passage about our assurance of salvation that God has given us. Paul says this, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And in the context of Romans chapter 8, we see all kinds of things that are there for our assurance. And we'll see some more of those later. The power of God is able to preserve us, to keep us on that track. And nothing in this world, not even life or death, or anything we can do, or anything anyone else can do, or anything Satan can do, will keep us from enduring and persevering by the power of God. And so we have that power of God to preserve us. The second thing that we see about the power and the purposes of God in the Bible is the Old Testament saints' confidence in God and His finishing the work of salvation even for them. There were Old Testament saints and they were confident that the Lord would ensure their continuance on the path of righteousness. And the Psalms reflect this in many different places and we can use the Psalms as our prayers as well in our praises. Psalm 37, 28 says this, For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake His godly ones. They are preserved forever. But the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. Old Testament saints even get it. It's not just a New Testament thing. They are preserved forever, his godly ones. In Psalm 73, verses 23 and 24, he says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. He believed that he was going to be in glory with God. Just like we today believe. He believed in the promised coming Messiah. He believed that God would keep his promises from the seed of Abraham. And he believed that the son of David would come. And all saints would be received into glory. And again, you see this. You take hold of my right hand. It reminds us of what Jesus said, right? Those who God has given him are in his hand and no one can snatch them out of his hand. We are the fathers and no one can snatch them out of the father's hand. He holds on to us. He holds our hand. He takes us. He keeps us going. We may lose our grip, but he never loses his grip on us. Because he is the almighty God and he will never lose us. And no one can snatch us out of his hand. He has chosen us. He has set us apart. He has adopted us, and we are His forever, and we will be received into glory. You see, also in Psalm 32, here we are, 
Psalm 32, it should be Psalm 23. Psalm 23, right? Favorite psalm, we hear it all the time, remember these things. Think of it in light of assurance. Psalm 23, 6, surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He had assurance. He had assurance. And we sing those songs and we think, uh, think about those psalms themselves and we remember them and we memorize these verses. But do we know this truth and do we hold to that that we will truly dwell in the house of the Lord forever because of his loving kindness, because he is the good shepherd? As John says of Jesus, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and they follow me. And again, I will not lose them. They will not perish. So this Old Testament saints knew this. And even when you think about the Old Testament prophets, they related the believer's security to the new covenant promises and purposes of God. In Jeremiah 32, 4, he says, I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. Here's what God said he is going to do. And the prophets proclaim, here is your assurance. God will do these things. He will change you. He will get to you to the point where you will not turn away he will put the fear of God in our hearts so that we will not turn from him. And it is an everlasting covenant. It is his promises and his power, even the Old Testament saints believed, would keep them to the end. And they have that assurance as well. The other thing when we think about the power and the purposes of God, the promise of eternal life. We see in Scripture that the promise of eternal life is there. Jesus gives eternal life to us, he says. It's a, and eternal life is not just a quantity of life that we live forever. It is a quality of life. It is a quantity of life and that it is a life without end, right? In John chapter 11 here, Jesus is after the... At coming up to the tomb of Lazarus after Lazarus has died. And, and they're saying, man, if you would have got here sooner, he wouldn't have died. And he looked at her and he said, I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, I am the resurrection. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you think about that? Here's eternal life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. It's eternal life. It is a life without end. It is quantitative. It is a life that just continues through eternity. But it is also not just a quality of life, quantity of life. It is a quality of life. A quality of life. A new kind of life. It is the life of God because God is eternal. John 17, 3 says, This is eternal life. That you may know, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life. Knowing God, knowing God now, knowing God for eternity, it changes everything in our life when we know God. 
When we have been given this new heart, as Ezekiel says, to, to, to know God and to know his commandments and want to obey him and to want to walk with him, being indwelt with the Spirit and having a love for God that we never had before because we were haters of God. It's a whole new life. Isn't it for you? Once you came to faith, wasn't your life totally different? There's joy, there's peace, there's contentment, there's hope, there's change, there's wonderful things. So it is not just a quantity of life, it is a quality of life that we experience today. This eternal life. But it is definitely a quantity of life. We will spend eternity in heaven with God forever. Within the promise of eternal life, we also find that Jesus tells us there is no condemnation. There is no condemnation. You don't have to worry that if you are a believer and you kind of fall into sin that you're going to be condemned. It's the promise there is no condemnation. John 5, 24, Jesus says this. Truly, truly, another one of those emphatic statements. Listen to this. I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Jesus says you will not come into judgment. There is no condemnation. Romans 8, 1, right? There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a wonderful thing that goes with this eternal life. We're going to be in heaven in glory forever and ever. And the promise of eternal life also includes no separation. So there's no condemnation and there is also no separation. There's no separation between us and God. Romans 8.35 says this, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? We see that again in 38.39. I am convinced that none of those things will do that. None of those things will separate us from the love of God. They won't separate us from the love of God. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 tells us that those who do not know God are, will be banished from His presence forever. God was in Christ reconciling us to himself. He wants us to have that relationship with him. He was reconciling us to himself. He wants that separation to be fixed. He wants to spend eternity with us. What did Jesus say in John 14? It's not on your list there, but it's written on your heart, right? In John chapter 14, another great assurance passage that Jesus tells us in chapter 1. Chapter 14, verse 1, he says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am you may be also. He wants to be with us. The separation is over. We will spend eternity in heaven in the presence of God. But if you don't believe in Jesus Christ... If you die in your sins, the wrath of God abides on you. And hell is not just a place of eternal punishment. It is the absence of the presence of God. Everything good, everything merciful, everything gracious, everything kind that you experience today just because of God's common grace to all men, reigning on the good and the evil crops, everything good that you experience will be God. There will be no hope, there will be no mercy, there will be no calling out to God.
That's what it says in Luke and the rich man and Lazarus. There's no mercy. And so when you put your faith in Christ, when you believe in him for the forgiveness of your sin, all of that changes. You're no longer destined for us. There's no condemnation. There's no more separation. You will spend eternity in God. In more full ways you'll experience the hope and the mercy and the grace and the love of Christ than you ever have before. Because your hope will no longer be hope because you will experience it. And your faith will no longer be faith because you will experience it. But the love of God will continue through all eternity. And that's why he says in Corinthians, right? There's faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Because it will continue on. We will be in the presence of God, worshiping him forever, experiencing his love like we could have never imagined before. And that's why Peter says, right, in 1 Peter 1.5, Though you do not, do not see him, you love him. And you can't wait to see him. Because that separation has been corrected. There is no separation in the promise of eternal life. And so we see the power and purposes of God in eternal life. And then also in that unbreakable chain of salvation. Romans chapter 8 and verses 29 and 30. It is that unbreakable chain of salvation that shows us the power and the purposes of God. It says, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. He also glorified. It's done. We haven't been glorified yet, but it is as if it already happened. We think here in time and we think about all the things that are going on and we get all wound up and anxious and worried and this and that about that. But he lives in eternity. And here he is. This has already been done. I chose you. I predestined you. I called you. And I have already glorified you. It's a done deal. Because I am God. And my plans will not fail. And so he can tell us, those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Our glorification is sure. We can't wait to get there, to get out of this sinful body and stop struggling. But we don't have to struggle with our assurance because God has made us, given us these truths. And so the power and purposes of God is seen in the unbreakable chain of salvation as well. And so we can say that the doctrine of preservation then aids in our assurance of salvation because we can know the power of God and the purpose of God will never fail. The power and the purposes of God will never fail. And second, we can see the preservation promised to the regenerate through the prayers of Jesus. Through the prayers of Jesus. Jesus' effectual prayers to the Father enable true believers to endure in the faith. And it's mostly seen in his intercessory prayers for us. See, John 17, and this is the Lord's high priestly prayer, or if you might say it is the Lord's prayer, his prayer, instead of the other one in Matthew 6. It is the Lord's prayer, but we pray that one, the disciples' prayer, and this is the one that 
Jesus was praying before he left the earth. And he talked about being back with the Father in glory. And he comes to verse 11, he says, I am no longer in the world, yet they themselves, the disciples who are there with him, are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name. The name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are. Jesus is praying to the Father that they would be kept in his name. That they would keep on in their faith. The things that they'd already believed and received, as he had said in the previous verses. And then he goes on in verse 15. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. To keep them from the evil one. To help them to keep persevering. To not give in to the world and the flesh and the devil. To keep them apart from the world. Be in the world, but not of the world. To be Set, uh, set apart for Christ, proclaiming the gospel and living according to his word. So keeping them in that, keeping them faithful. And he did, and he will, and he continues. And so this is for the disciples, but he goes on and he talks about everyone who will believe. He says in verse 20, I do not ask on behalf of these alone who are there listening to him, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may be all May all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. So here is Jesus praying this effectual prayer that will come to pass, that all of those who believed in the gospel that the disciples would claim, that would continue on through life, even to us, that they would be one, they would be in me and I in you, that they would be in us also, that we would be indwelt with the Holy Spirit, that we would be God's people. He's praying that for us. And he goes on, verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. Jesus is praying that they would be with him. They would see his glory, and they would see the love that you had for me before the foundation of the world. That they might know the Father's love for the Son. <laughs> I can't even imagine. We get to see that and experience that. But all of that because Christ's effectual prayers for us. Oops, sorry. And when Christ prays something, it is always according to the will of God. And the Bible, biblical principle is, if you pray according to the will of God, then you are in God's will and those things come to pass. Those Prayers are fulfilled. And Jesus is praying these things for us that we would be kept, that we would persevere, that we would be apart from the world, and that we would continue to grow and that we would be in glory with him and see the love the Father has for him. And those things, therefore, because he prays them, and it is according to the will of God, because that's all he does is according to the will of God, they will come to pass. It is guaranteed. It is assured. We can have confidence that if we have been born again, this will happen to us. Because Jesus prayed it for us. That's wonderful. 
We also see his intercessory prayers there in Romans chapter 8 and verse 34. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, but was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. And this is said in the context of the absolute security and the final salvation of God's elect in Romans 8. He is interceding for us that we would persevere, that we would have that assurance that all of those things that we read about in Romans would come to pass. And therefore, they will. And so, no, it's not just a, a doctrinal treatise or not just, we know, Romans 8, 28, we know that God works in everything together for those who love Him or are called according to His purpose. We know this. It is a fact. It is a settled truth. It is something that we can put put our faith in and our hope in and our security in because it will happen because Christ is interceding for us to make it happen. Amazing stuff that God has shown us. And then you get to Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 24 and 25. It says, but Jesus, on the other hand, talking about the high priest before, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. It just keeps going together. It just keeps Falling in place. It keeps saying the same thing over and over and over. God wants us to know this. He wants us to be secure. He wants us to be at peace with this. He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Always. Christ not just sitting up, Christ isn't just sitting up there on the throne. He is interceding for us. He is busy in our lives. And then you see 1 John 2, 1. Now, I don't have a letter B, and I know that's not really good for some people to not have an A and not a B. But if you want a B, you can put in advocating. But it's also interceding, so I didn't put one. But if it makes your outline look cleaner, I'm, I'm good with that. Don't want any distractions. 1 John 2, 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with, with the Father, Christ Jesus the righteous. We do still sin. We know that. John knows we're going to sin, but not going to have sin as a continual habit of life, the same sins over and over and over and things like that. Not unrepentant sin, right? He says just before this in 1 John 1, 9, if you confess through your mouth, if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? And so he knows that we will. If we say we have no sin, we're a liar and the truth is not in us. So he, in, he's giving us this to say that we know that you're still gonna sin. But I'm writing these things so that you don't, so you don't willfully sin, so that you can work on overcoming them. And if anyone does sin, then we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus, the righteous. And we know that an advocate is one who 
has been called to stand beside you. He's like the attorney. He's the, he's the lawyer. He's your defense attorney, right? So when a believer sins, Christ takes up his position beside the believer before God. He points out that his death on the cross took care of all sins, both before and after regeneration. And the advocacy of, advocacy of Christ always guarantees that the believer will not suffer any punishment any eternal wrath the death penalty for our sins was put on Christ and he paid that Christ has already borne the penalty and so he just keeps telling it you know but Satan keeps accusing and he accuses us and he makes us want to doubt but we have to remember that our attorney is the sovereign Christ the righteous one who says nope nope Nope, and he keeps defending us. And so we have to look to him and not to Satan and not believe the lies and exchange the truth of God for a lie. We believe the truth. And even though we sin, we have an advocate who will defend us and will help us to grow and change. And that is a wonderful truth of Christ interceding for us. So the prayers of Jesus then help us in our assurance because we know that his prayers will always be fulfilled. The doctrine of preservation aids our assurance of salvation because we know the prayers of Jesus will always be fulfilled. Isn't that wonderful? I can't wait for a lot of those to be answered. I'm excited. That's good. And next, the presence of the Holy Spirit. So we have the Father, the Son, and then the presence of the Holy Spirit helps us in our preservation that is promised to the regenerate. And first we see that we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. We have his presence, right? 1 John 3, 24. We know by this that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us, right? And that's right after 1 John 2. There we were talking about the advocacy. We have the Spirit in us. We have all of these things that God has given us to help us to continue on. If you go back in Romans 8, the first part of that, it talks about us being indwelt with the Spirit over and over again. And if we walk according to the flesh instead of the Spirit, we need to change that. We need to walk according to the Spirit and live according to the Spirit because we are indwelt with the Spirit because we are the people of God. And then, therefore, that helps and aids in our assurance as well. The next one is we are led by the Spirit. We are led by the Spirit. There's Romans 8, 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. We are led by the Spirit. We're controlled by the Spirit rather than by the flesh. We have this new heart that wants to do the things that God has called us to do. We want to obey his commandments, even though we may struggle. And we're led by the Spirit, and we're going along in life, and a decision comes up, and we're tempted in some area, or something happens. And these verses that we have written on our heart, the Holy Spirit brings back to our mind, and we're like, okay, we're going to live for God, and we're going to live for self. But the Spirit helps us, and He leads us, and He guides us through His Word and through those promptings to do what He has called us to do. And so we have the presence of the Holy Spirit that helps us to know that we have been promised preservation because He keeps working at us. He keeps on us. He doesn't give up. We may try to sear our conscience. We may grieve the Holy Spirit. We may... Um, I forgot the other one there. May grieve the Holy Spirit and some others as well, and I'll think of that some other time. But 
we, the Holy Spirit keeps coming back. And he keeps pulling us back. Keeps putting us back to that faith that we have professed. And third, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, right? We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1 says this, In him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, salvation having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with the view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. And again, we see all these assurance things popping out. It's amazing. It's like when you first see election, you're like, oh my goodness, then it's everywhere. And you begin to understand the truth of, of assurance as well. And I hope that you begin to just see it everywhere. God wants us to be assured of this, right? After we believed the gospel, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. It's a promise. He was given to us as a pledge of our inheritance. Our eternal inheritance. With a view to the redemption of God's own possession. God will finally redeem us. To the praise of his glory. And so we are sealed with the Holy Spirit as well. And the Spirit is God's, is, it's his pledge or his earnest down payment that he will fulfill his covenant promises that he has promised to us in the already not then aspects of the covenant, right? Some things have happened already and some things have happened not yet. And they will, but they will happen. Just as Randy has been teaching us, right? The kingdom of God is among us, but the kingdom of God is coming. And we will be a part of that as well. And so he is a pledge of our inheritance. And note, we don't give him a pledge of our faith, which we can withdraw at any moment. But rather, God gives us just the Holy Spirit as his pledge that we will receive all that he has purposed and all that he has promised. God gives us that pledge, and he doesn't ask us to pledge that. We have faith and we go forward. It's the indwelling spirit in our life that helps us to see those things. So the presence of the Holy Spirit will always help us. The doctrine of preservation then aids in our assurance of salvation because we know that the presence of the Holy Spirit will always help us, will always guide us, will always lead us, will always help us to know what God has said, will always help bring us back to the truth that God has showed us. And he works in a multitude of ways, and we know that, and we aren't getting to all of those different things. But its purpose, the Holy Spirit's purpose, his purpose is to keep true believers in the path of faith and godliness, righteousness, and security. Part of his work is to help us to feel secure in our salvation. We talk about the gifts, and we talk about the things, and we talk about all those different things that go on, and... But part of his work is just to help us feel secure. Isn't that nice? Nothing ecstatic about that. Just nice and content. That's wonderful. It does produce emotion, though. All right. So, conclusion. The doctrine of preservation aids in our assurance of salvation because we can know the power and purposes of God will never fail. The prayers of Jesus will always be fulfilled. And the presence of the Holy Spirit will always help us. And that is wonderful. And that is what God is teaching us. And I hope that you would come to see that. 
One of the great passages that we see often and hear every Sunday is Jude 24 and 25, right? Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. As we study assurance, I hope that that verse begins to have more and more meaning and more and more joy for you. Our salvation is guaranteed by God's promise of preservation. But there's an issue with this, Jude 24 and 25, that you may have been taught that may need to be corrected so that you can have the true joy that God would have us as we read this benediction on Sundays. Now, Calvinists say it offers assurance because it speaks about God's ability or power to preserve believers to the end. Right? It's about God's ability. He is able. Right? It's his ability to speak about God's uh, to, or power to preserve believers to the end. But Arminians, those who don't believe in the security of salvation, or the uh, yeah, security of sal- assurance of salvation, say it's not speaking about God's power, but rather God's will. Specifically, God's desired will, which may or may not happen. Now, just for a brief review there, we've got the notes in your, uh, thing in your note there, definitions. God's will is, can be in three parts. Some would say two, some would say three. I would say three. There's God's sovereign will in the Bible, God's desired will, and God's commanded will. Now, God's sovereign will, and I think these are definitions from MacArthur, uh, includes his complete control over everything. Everything that happens is part of God's predetermined plan, and everything happens exactly as God has planned it to happen. As Randy read a couple of weeks ago in Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, right? And then we have God's desired will. It is consistent with his sovereign will, but it is not always fulfilled. It is directly related to moral decisions humans will make that God predetermined they would make for his glory. You see things like God desires all men to be saved and come to repentance. But are all men saved and come to repentance? No. And so that would be something that is in his desired will. It's in his sovereign will, but it's related to human decisions that moral decisions that humans make. And in his commanded will. What God commands or calls his people to do or not to do, it is consistent with his sovereign will, it is part of his desired will, and is revealed in scripture as laws or principles. God holds us accountable to know and to do his commanded will, right? And so those are the differences that we see when we say, what is God's will for your life? It's like, well, I'll never know his sovereign decreed will until after it happens. And that's the one we always want to know, right? I can to know his commanded will because that's clearly in scripture and I can follow those things and then make principal decisions from there as well. But his desired will, all we know is that it says that and we know that he desires some things that don't come to pass. And so, Calvinists would say that It offers assurance because it speaks about God's ability or power to preserve believers to the end. It is part of God's sovereign will. 
right? It is part of God's sovereign will there in Jude 24 that we are kept. It is God's, God is able to keep us to the end and persevere, right? Keep us from stumbling. Now, Arminians, not speaking about God's power, but rather God's will, specifically God's desired will, which may or may not happen, but we're misinterpreting the text, right? We want to see what does the text say in the context there. Are they right? Are we right? How do we do this within the hermeneutics, right? He says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority for our time and now and forever. So here's the conclusion of this letter that Jude wrote, right? And if you look at the context of the letter, he is writing to them about about persevering and about false teachers and false doctrine and all the things that are happening there and how they live their lives in light of that. But he begins with this letter speaking to those who are kept by God. And so Jude, he says there in verse 1, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. And so in the context of this passage, we're seeing that these are the people he is talking to, those who are born again, those who are regenerate, those who are kept by God, called by God. He is talking to the elect, right? And so to them, he is saying, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, it's giving him praise, it's giving him honor. It's not about whether he wills it or he doesn't will it, and we can not do what God wants to, what God, it's, it's God's desired will here, right? But we can not do it if we don't want to. It's not about that. It's about his sovereign will that we, God is doing what he is doing to protect us, and we can just have faith in that. Does that make sense? And so it's not our choice whether God keeps us or not. He's able to, but if we don't choose to follow that, then you know, we miss out on that ability. It's about God sovereignly decreeing that he will keep us to the end. Is that clear? Sorry, I didn't make that clear. So he will keep us to the end. But sometimes we see those things and we hear those things in churches that we've been in, in the past or whatever. And it's like, see, well, he's able, but, you know, if, if, I don't, if I don't keep going in the faith, if I don't keep doing this, then, you know, that doesn't apply to me. And so I doubt my salvation because I'm struggling with this or I'm struggling with that or sometimes I don't love God as much as I should or whatever. But that's not what that says. If God has called you, he will keep you. If God has saved you and regenerated you and given you a heart for him, he will keep you. It's by his power that we are able to keep us from stumbling and to keep us to the end. And therefore, it's to the praise of his glory. Because he has authority, he has majesty, he has dominion over all things both now and forever. And he will keep us both now and forever. And that's the point that Jude is trying to make. And so when you hear those verses every Sunday and you think about that, think about what God has done for you. Think about what he is truly saying. And if you haven't come to that point yet, I pray that you would. Because if you're still trying to do enough, you're still trying to, to work a little harder, and sin a little less, and do whatever to try to keep my salvation and keep my security, understand that you will never do enough. Because you're a sinner. But you can be a repentant sinner 
for the rest of your life and have assurance. And you can come Sunday and you can see that and it will bring you so much joy and so much grace and so much hope. You can leave every Sunday assured again that God is able to keep you. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for your promises and for your truth. Thank you for your everlasting loving kindness, for the hope of eternal life that is sure. Give us assurance. Thank you for praying for us, our Lord. Thank you for working in us, Holy Spirit. Help us not to quench you or grieve you. Thank you, Father. May we rejoice with this body for your glory and encourage one another all the more as the days draws near for you to fulfill this promise. And we see your love for your son. In his name we pray, amen.